sorry, I'm so disturbed by I this know, rain. It's, it's so pouring. loud. I hope it's not as loud as as it sounds in the. Because sometimes it does sound really. Loud. It does sound really loud in here, and sometimes afterwards when I'm listening to it. It's like extra noises aren't as loud as yeah. I thought they were at the time, but it's See how really we go. <laughs> Welcome to Literary Anything, our Marion Libraries podcast, where we talk about anything literary and literary anything. I'm Paula. I'm Andrea. Welcome back, Andrea. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's nice, yes. to, nice to come back. Yes. Yeah, it's good to have you back. Do you want to say what book we read for this month? Yes, we read Our Missing Hearts by Celeste Ng. Shall I'll read a little blurb on the back. 12-year-old bird gardener lives a quiet existence with his loving but broken father, a former linguist who now shelves books in Harvard's library. He knows not to ask too many questions, stand out too much, stray too far. For a decade, their lives have been governed by laws written to preserve American culture in the wake of years of economic instability and violence. To keep the peace and restore prosperity, the authorities are now allowed to relocate children of dissidents, especially those of Asian origin, and libraries have been forced to remove books seen as unpatriotic, including the work of Bird's mother, Margaret, a Chinese-American poet who left the family when he was nine years old. Bird has grown up disavowing his mother and her poems. He doesn't know her work or what happened to her, and he knows he shouldn't wonder. But when he receives a mysterious letter containing only a cryptic drawing, he is drawn into a quest to find her. His journey will take him through the many folk tales she poured into his head as a child, through the ranks of an underground network of librarians, into the lives of the children who have been taken, and finally to New York, where a new act of defiance may be the beginning of much-needed change. Celeste Ng is an Asian-American writer that you might know from her first novel, Everything I Never Told You, which is a thriller set in 1970s Ohio and explores kind of race and class in middle America. And her second novel from 2017 was called Little Fires Everywhere, which looks at two families after an act of arson also in Ohio and kind of follows their family histories. You might have heard of this because it was adapted by Reese Witherspoon and Kerry Washington for TV. I think it became an eight-part series. Yes. Have you read any of those? No, I've heard of Little Fires Everywhere, Mm. but... I couldn't figure out where it rang a bell from. Okay. So, yeah, so I was really excited to read this month's one. Yeah. I've not read any of her work before. I read Little Fires Everywhere and also watched the miniseries and I really enjoyed them both. I maybe even enjoyed the miniseries more. And so, yeah, it's obvious that race and class play a large part in what Celeste writes about because that's the case in this novel as well. Yeah, for sure. So where should we start with this? Okay. Well, what did you think? What did you think of the of the novel? How did you find reading it? Yeah, it's funny that it doesn't say anywhere on here that it's a dystopian novel or Mm -hmm. in many of the summaries that certainly not on the Goodreads summary. I couldn't see it described as a dystopian novel. And I wondered if that was on purpose, if maybe there's a bit of a fatigue out there about dystopian novels because there have been so many, especially since the popularity of The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, but I feel like the last 10 years, even from Hunger Games as well, it's mm. just been like dystopia 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 yeah yeah do you think that was purposeful I'm not quite sure I was sort of wondering if because her two previous novels have had quite literary reputations Mm. I was sort of wondering if maybe they didn't mention the dystopia because they didn't want people to think it was too much of a genre novel Mm. Uh, I wasn't quite sure but then dystopia seems to be that kind of 
part of sci-fi that kind of often bleeds into literary fiction that kind of blurs together. Yeah. And that even though people who would say, oh, I never read genre fiction, would quite happily read a dystopia by someone like Margaret Atwood. So I wasn't quite sure. I thought it definitely didn't seem to play much role in the marketing of the book, Mm. but is definitely a piece of dystopian fiction. I really enjoyed the process of reading this book. It's really readable. I've never read anything before by her before like I mentioned but this is like it's super easy just to sit down and just get into it really quickly the writing's really immersive the chapters are short you kind of start off in the perspective of Bird who's about I think a 12 year old boy so the first section is really his story he lives with his dad in this you know tiny dorm in this tiny town his dad seems like this kind of broken person but Mm. we're not quite sure why Bird's mum has left their family without any explanation about three or four years before and he is, you know, he still seems really kind of quietly traumatised by that. He's bullied it by kids at school around that but we don't quite know why. You know, is it just like the kind of casual cruelty of children or what else is going on? He has a young friend, Sadie, who is also in foster care. She's been taken away from her parents and she's also kind of bullied and ostracised at school because of this. And we know at school there's something called pact. We don't really know what it is, but it's this pledge of allegiance the kids give every day. Little details build up and we know that mm. the kind of the world the kids live in is quite a kind of strange one. But the exact details and its framework is still a bit shadowy to us. And the novel begins with Bird, who's sort of eking out a fairly lonely, isolated existence with his dad, receives a mysterious kind of letter that he presumes is from his mum. It's actually, there's no words on it. It's a drawing of tiny little cats, cats kind of filling a wall. And this sort of triggers something in Bird and he begins to think it's from his mum and he can't figure out what it means, why she'd send it to him, what she's trying to tell him, even if he wants to hear anything from his mum. As far as he knows, she just inexplicably, after being a really loving mum, walked out in their family and he's like, even if it is from her, do I want to know? He knows that the letter has been opened before and he kind of takes that for granted. We don't know why. And we don't really know anything about his mum. So that kind of starts him on a process of deciding, does he want to track down his mum? And he decides that he does. And then we learn a little bit more about the world of dystopia as Bird begins to try and figure out this strange message his mum has sent him. Maybe we should talk about what PACT stands for which is Preserving American Cultures and Traditions Act. Yes. So we begin to learn that um, in a time we kind of presume is a bit like our own, there was a massive financial crisis in America. The exact details of it, to my frustration, are never really made all that concrete. We know that there was a kind of massive economic downturn, probably that America's kind of role as a kind of international superpower Mm. sort of declined in relation to China. It certainly Um, seems very familiar, though. It's not... It's a world that doesn't seem that far away from our own. It certainly felt closer to reality than The Handmaid's Tale felt to me at the time when I read The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, for sure. It's sort of... So the idea is that this massive economic decline in America... While China is, is kind of doing quite well for itself. And so the decline in America is explained not with like any reference to, you know, American capitalism or, or anything. It's just that sort of somehow vaguely mm. China has kind of, you know, diminished or undermined America and, and it's is now refer- a kind of global enemy or an enemy. And it's of referred America. to as the crisis with a capital yeah. C, which sort of reminded me of I mean it wasn't 
they didn't talk about a plague, I don't think, but it kind of reminded me of how we talk about COVID or the global financial crisis. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of the stuff we read about the economic collapse in the 70s. So I guess like coming out of that kind of post-war booms, that period of big prosperity and then everything starts to decline and Mm. you read about American cities of like, you know, people fleeing the inner cities for the suburbs, the... You, know, you read about things about New York in that time because lots of this novel is set in New York. I guess mm. it made me think about that of like, you know, the buildings just emptying out, shuttered up cities, people trying to like eke out existences by doing like scavenging or, mm. um, you know, kind of piecemeal work of the city feeling really dangerous after dark. So it reminded me, yeah, a lot of those. I would have to say that the dystopian part of this was the part of it I found the least interesting convincing I'm not sure how you felt about it it felt a bit like dystopia by numbers uh. <laughs> it kind of it was like there was an economic crisis and we've all blamed it on China and everyone was kind of happy about that and now we've got this I think the idea is that the the pact was kind of brought in piecemeal like there was some sort of stuff that comes initially around restructuring the economy and then there's stuff that comes in about protecting culture and then mm. there's something that comes in about being able to so the state is able to remove children from parents it deems to be a dissident based on the idea that you know it's it's kind of abusive for children to grow up in a home with people who have un-american values mm. that you need to give them a proper kind of start in life so i think kids under 12 are rehomed they but they kind of moved around America to make it incredibly difficult for them to ever find their way back. And kids over 12 that are deemed to be possibly mature enough to be able to find their way back to mm. their families are put into foster homes. Mm. Now, often in another part of the country, they're given new names. So it's made like incredibly difficult for parents and children to reunite afterwards. This is also done, everyone kind of knows that it's done, but it's done also sort of very, very kind of quietly. Like it's, mm. it's not sort of you know, a big publicised part of Pact. So we know that Sadie, Bird's friend, has been removed from her parents who were journalists who were looking into the removal of children from their families. This was one of my favourite parts of the book. Sadie was one of my favourite characters. Yeah, she's great. She just, even though she's a side character, her fierce loyalty to her parents and especially to her mother and also her trying to enlighten Bird about perhaps what his mother was doing or even just her role in these acts of dissonance, I, I found it really endearing. And she was so young, but she had these sort of more, she she questioned things more than Bird did about Pact. Bird was very much in school, you know, the teachers would say, oh, well, of course we want to protect you from people who have ideas that might be dangerous or might encourage somebody to hurt you. And Bird was like, well, yeah, of course, of course we mm. wouldn't want that. Whereas Sadie with her parents who were journalists. And I found that scene where she has, Sadie has this video of her mother that she's somehow been able to get of her mum reporting on, I think it was a, ch- a child who was being rehomed, and she was trying to report on this fact. And as sh- she's standing there in the camera reporting on this, you see police officers in the background approach her, and she says into the microphone, I'm being arrested, I think, or mm. something like that. And then her cameraman as well, you see the cameraman, you see the camera being, well, you assume it's being placed down because your vantage point is suddenly their feet and then the police officers escorting them both away. And Sadie's got this 
video that she's managed to keep on her phone and as she's gotten different phones as she's being passed around different foster families she's been able to transfer it on each phone and Mm. she just sits in the corner sometimes and watches this video of her mother and what she was trying to do yeah the character of Sadie is really she's really fantastic I think and there's like a nice parallel set up between her and Bird so there's a, a bit that kind of says that you know, Sadie receives so much love as a child that she never believes that her child, her parents weren't worthy of her. Mm-hmm. Like, she knows that she belongs with her parents, that they belong with her, that this is kind of nonsense. And she's really proud of who her parents are. She's proud of them for doing what they're doing. And she wants to be reunited with them, partly because she wants to join in with them. Like, she wants to be part of this too. She's kind of proud to be part of their family. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a contrast with Bird, who his mother we learn has also become a kind of key figure or kind of icon of the resistance movement because she was a poet and her poetry started to be used by other activists in some of their their kind of protests with these kind of art installations they do around the city quite unintentionally by her quite unintentionally Mm. she at the time she's a new mum she's kind of moved out of the city into a place in the suburbs um her life, after really scrounging out an existence through the crisis, is getting kind of settled. She's growing gardens. She's having a kid. She's pretty ensconced in domestic life. Mm. She's not looking to become a radical. But as and her she's not really that interested in pact or no, what's going on with she's it. she's not. And her poetry itself wasn't intended to be political at all. It yeah. was actually written when she was pregnant. So a lot of it is about childbirth and mm. children and the relationship in nature between mothers and children. And I think the link then to the protest movement is about because children are being taken away from their children, from their parents, that people sort of draw on her poems as part of these art installations that start to pop up um, around the city. And so she becomes declared essentially like a kind of public enemy, even though she's, this is a shock to her. And eventually she thinks this will pass, we'll write it out. But it becomes really clear to her that if she doesn't leave the family, they'll take Bird off them. They'll That's presume right. that the whole family are radicals. So she leaves the family to ensure that Bird can stay with his father, Ethan, and won't be taken off them. But, of course, Bird doesn't know any of this initially, and all he knows is that Bird's father says, we don't speak about your mother. Yes. And that's it. And his dad has, like, thrown out everything that could remind them of their mum. Occasionally, you know, neighbours do check-ins, police do check-ins. You know, he tells them all they have nothing to do with her, they have no sympathy for her, they have no relationship with her. But he's never actually spoken to Bird about why this is. So unlike Sadie, who I think is driven to know and to be involved mm-hmm. and to discover her, her her parents again, Bird is kind of this really internal kid. He's mm-hmm. kind of lost in this world of, like, you know, reading and fairy tales and kind of drifting through. He's sad and he's lonely and I think maybe because he doesn't kind of know about his mum, he thinks she's just abandoned him. So part of Bird's, I guess, trajectory in this novel is about kind of shifting away from this kind of state of unknowing and this sort of childlike sense of trying to explain things by virtual fairy tales or stories to actually learning about the world, how it works, what his mum's role in it, what his role might be, and kind of thinking through that, you know, instead of just kind of passively drifting through about really thinking about his own agency, you know, what he thinks is fair. He's had kind of experiences where he's seen a man of Chinese origin refuse service at a restaurant 
and he's, he's really confused. He's kind of looking at his dad because we should kind of mention himself, Bird is also of Chinese. I think he's Margaret Mu is his mum's name. So mm. he has Asian features. He's sort of identifiably Asian and this is something that his dad kind of tells him. This means you have to keep your head down. Mm. You have to be, you know, incredibly docile. You have to not draw attention to yourself. You stick to rules. You stick to routines. You're nice to the police. You don't do anything that will draw attention to yourself. So when he sees this man who looks like him denied kind of service he's, and his father not do anything... He's really confused about this and he goes to, eventually he goes to New York to try and track down his mum and one of the first things he sees is this incredibly distressing scene of a man essentially beating a woman to death on the street and killing her dog right in front Mm. of him. And there's this moment where I think that's when Bird starts to transition away from this childlike state of kind of unknowingness and unquestioningness to this kind of thing. There's no terrible things happen in the world. No one seems to be doing anything about it how do I feel about this and what do I want to do? And so that's, I think, something he starts to work through in his relationship with his mum when he rediscovers her and finds out exactly what she's been doing, why she left, and what's driving her. So what did you think of the character of Bird's father? I really liked him. (laughs) So Bird's father, Ethan, is he had been a linguist, Mm -hmm. I think, and he becomes a kind of library bookshelver, and I guess his role in life, he sees it is to protect Bert at all costs. So he moves away from their house in the suburbs when they're under the scrutiny of their neighbours to a small little dorm in this university where they stay in a you know a bunk. And the idea about this is to help them avoid scrutiny. So he takes this quiet job where you know he's he's not going to drag any attention to himself. And he, you know, he gives Bert all these rules he has to follow about the the road he has to take when he's coming home, about how he has to conduct himself in public. And it's driven by, we kind of realised, just complete terror that one slip up and Bird could be taken off him and he will have lost everything. Like, we kind of realised that he and his wife Margaret, they never had some falling out. This was kind of their separation was like an act of love to protect Bird. And he knows now that, like, he's the sole person responsible for protecting Bird. And Bird's really vulnerable because of who his mother is, because of what the times are like. So he's just a man who's completely, I think, kind of grief-stricken by the situation they've found themselves in. He's given up on all of his own hopes and aspirations and his life is like entirely about protecting this kid. But on the other hand, not talking to Bird about what's going on, not explaining how the world works, not explaining what's happened with his mum means that Bird has to leave Ethan to go and find out who he is and who his family is and how the world works. So he eventually unravels this message from his mum mm-hmm. with the help of some librarians that we can chat about if you like. Yeah. And he goes to New York to meet his mum and he leaves a note for his dad telling him what's happened and we sort of find out at the end of the book like you know poor Ethan is just absolutely distraught like he he doesn't know where his child is he knows he's in New York which is a really dangerous place he feels like he's failed Mm. his one job was to protect Bird and he hasn't done it Mm. um so I felt so sorry for him I thought he was just such a sympathetic character he's kind of doing his best he's driven by terror he's not getting it right, but it's not from lack of trying, I think. Uh, and he has this quirky characteristic of, because he's a linguist, always breaking down words and describing what the different parts of words mean to Bird to really, to drill down on the origins of the words that I found really yeah, endearing. Yeah, I really liked that. I really liked it. So he seems like he'd be a great person to be friends with, I think. Yeah, I would, I know some people would probably find that I don't know, dull, but I love that kind of thing. I loved all those bits in the yeah, book. There's yeah, there's bits where he'll like, you know, break down, 
into like here's the three parts of the word and where yeah. they came from. So yeah. here's what and he does this that for this. words in Mandarin as well. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. I really liked it. I loved him as a character. I wanted a little bit more of him towards the end. I wanted right. to know that once he's seen that Bird has reunited um, with his mum and had this experience, I sort of wanted a bit more of a scene. So we should sort of explain mm. that Ethan does come back in at the end of the novel and reunites with Bird and with Sadie and they kind of decide to essentially kind of stick together mm. as a kind of surrogate family to stop trying to hide out in the suburbs and to face whatever uncertainty the future kind of might hold, but to try and, you know, stop hiding, stop keeping their heads down and try and move forward in some in some way. And they're still looking for Sadie's family. They're still looking for Sadie's family. That's like a key part of what they're going to do. Mm. They're going to try and reunite her with her parents. But I sort of would have liked some kind of talk between the two of them. So when Bird does reunite with his mum, they spend a couple of nights in this house in New York talking and his mum explaining her life story, mm-hmm. what's kind of led her to leading the family, why she's become a part of the resistance, why she thinks the resistance is important and what she's kind of building up to doing. So there's some big act of defiance that she's building towards. Yeah. Bird's not quite sure. He's really worried that it could be violent and he's not sure. His mum has been collecting these little bottle tops and his first instinct is to think that she's creating bombs that she's going to be planting all around New York City. And I was pretty convinced of that too Me initially. too. I thought that's totally what she was going to do. And, you know, she's like melting down metals and yeah. coppers and stuff. And I thought, oh, if this is a, just a big explosion, it's going to be really boring. <laughs> yeah. And that seems to be what he's worried she's going to do too. And he's, yeah. he's feeling a bit ambivalent. Like they have this moment where he, as she tells him his story, he begins to warm to her again and mm. to trust her and to kind of understand that she didn't have a choice to leave the family, that, that- it was an act of love to protect him. But on the other hand... Maybe she's gone a bit feral and she's about to try and blow up New York City and he's not quite sure how he feels about that. Um. That part was so beautiful. That mm. It's so sad how, you know, when you were talking about Bird being a really lonely kid and not understanding what happened with his mother, that was really so, so painful to think about that he has these beautiful memories mm. of his mother inside him and I think he would have known that she loved him and yet as far as he knows she abandoned him mm. so it was yeah it was interesting to see them come back together again and have her explain to bird exactly what it was that happened and why she felt like she had to leave yeah and should we talk about the role that libraries play in this yes yeah so bird goes in starts going into the library because sadie mentions that it's somewhere that she likes to I don't know if she says that she like does any research there, but she hangs out there, doesn't mm. she? Yeah, it says that her parents used to read to That's her every right. night. And as part of Pact, books have been banned. So mm. there's no books at school, there's no books at home, there's no bookshops, but libraries are one of the few places that still exist and they have a very carefully kind of vetted collection but you can go in there yeah. and uh, she finds comfort being around the books because it reminds her of her parents. That's right. So Bird goes into the library one day and the reason he starts visiting the library is because he's trying to track down a book of fairy tales that he thinks that will explain this strange picture of cats that his mum sent him. So he starts skulking about in libraries looking a bit suspicious himself and he sees a kind of distressed looking man passing a book to a librarian and saying that there was this note in the book and the librarian kind of makes note of the book and the man is telling the librarian that it could be that the people who left the note in this book really, really miss the note and really need to get the note. Mm. So she'd really try and get it back to wherever it came from. And 
that kind of, he starts to just sort of see that the librarian, because he's trying to figure out how to break into his dad's library, he's paying very close attention to the librarians <laughs> to see how he can, you know, break into the sealed off section of the library. And so he kind of notices that the book, that lots of the librarians seem to be pulling little notes out of books, mm. fitting books sort of around the country in their little carts, that there's collections of books that stay sort of out the back in this kind of shelving area that don't come onto the shelf. So he begins to suss something's up with the books and with the notes. And we kind of discover through the course of the book that librarians have been playing a role in trying to reunite kids and their parents. So the notes are the details of children who've been taken and other notes are the details of parents who are looking for children. Mm -hmm. And these notes are distributed around the country in books. So, you know, libraries pass books from one to the other, mm. we circulate kind of books all around a network. So that network gets used to try and distribute information about children and parents so they can try and, it, if not reunite the children, so they, they can tell the parents, this is where your child is, this is where they're growing up and so on. So it becomes a kind of a safe place for people to hang out, so for children like Sadie to hang out. And it's also, I guess, part of this underground network of family reunification i mean i just loved that did you <laughs> i mean how, how how could we not working in libraries and already feeling like our our place is a place where everybody can come everybody is welcome even in time times of peace and yeah um, you know not a dystopian novel like this is but especially in this environment where and bird goes in even before that he has an encounter with that man bird has an encounter with the librarian and she is good to him and kind to him mm. and makes him feel welcome there and so that coupled with the idea that you know we love libraries as a place of knowledge that also the librarians are helping to reunite these kids and families, kids and parents. Mm. It's just, it's, it's fun to think about. It was fun to put myself in that librarian's place and think about what I would do and how I would, if it was, if it would be possible to help yeah. um, in reality in that way. I think I love the positive representation of libraries. I was very keen on that, but I think I found I think for me, the parts of the book that I found the weakest were the stuff about the dystopia uh, and how it works. So okay. I, I think I just found this all really vague. Right. Like I didn't, maybe it's just part of how my brain works. Because then they say that like, so the notes get passed around, but there's no kind of master document. There's no one really keeping track of everything. The librarians just kind of remember everything. And I was like, how? They're only human. Like, how does this work? <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I guess I, I just, didn't think too deeply about how it yeah, worked. I, I just like the I, idea. I, I overthought <laughs> it, I reckon. Like, and I was thinking, I don't know how this works. <laughs> and yeah, so I think that part of it for me just didn't kind of work it quite as well. The right. parts of this book that worked really well for me was the stuff about the relationships between kids and their parents, which I think she writes really, really well about. Like, there are bits in there where someone... So one thing Margaret does is she goes around after she leaves the family, she goes around tracking down families who've had their children taken off them and trying to collect their stories. Mm. You know, what happened that led to the child's removal, identifying things about the child, but also then just stories about the child. And she kind of ends up staying with the families. And this part of the novel, depending on how you look at it, you might find it a little bit didactic because... One of the things she does, so she might stay with a an African-American family and so part of their conversation will also be about the relationship between Asian-Americans mm. and African-Americans, the often fraught relationships there. Then she also stays with a family who's of Muslim background who talks about their experience of racism as children after 9-11 and how there's this kind of need for solidarity kind of across America of kind of breaking down racial prejudice across 
racial groups and having building solidarity. So I think there are sections of that that feel a bit didactic. Okay. It feels like a bit of a scheme. To right. Go, a I mean, I don't preaching or yeah, I didn't disagree with anything that mm. she's saying. It just sort of felt like it was a bit more of a like you could see the the schema. Like yeah, they okay. kind of. I thought that was she's a little on her bit like box a bit. Yeah, you could see that like she's trying to make a political point and she's kind of you know, driving the novel in that direction rather than it feeling as a part of a story, for okay. example. But I don't, I don't disagree with anything she's saying. It just felt a bit schematic to me. Mm. Uh, but the the bit then about the kind of the collecting the stories, some of those memories are really great. Like there's a father who can't quite remember if his child was five or fifteen, and he writes that like there's this weird thing about your your children sometimes is the way time seems to loop and they could be 15 but in a particular moment they remind you of when they were five and you kind of see them as the child they used to be and not as the like young adult they are in front of you and she writes just really sort of lovingly about just how it feels to be a parent and how it feels to be a child and I thought they were the best parts of mm-hmm. the book and then the bit about preparing your child to go into a world that's not great like I think that's something so part of the discussion with Bird is like how should you be in the world? If the world isn't fair, mm. how should you be? Like she's tried burying her head and she can't because there's like that – I think you know there's that old quote like first they came for the communists but I wasn't a communist so right. I didn't do anything and then they came for, I don't know, the the Poles but I wasn't Polish so I didn't do anything and then they came for me and there was no one left. So mm. she doesn't – you know, she keeps her head down, she does what she's been raised to do and eventually it ends up at her front door anyway. Yeah. And she can't walk away from it. She can't not do anything. If her family will ever be safe or her grandchildren will ever be safe, she has to act and she has to do something. And there's that thing, you know, when she goes around visiting, it's like people have been taking children off Indigenous Americans for ages and you did Mm. nothing. So what do you want me to do for you now? Or like they've been killing African-American kids for so long and you did nothing. You buried your head in your garden. Why should I care about you're lost now, your child is still alive, you chose to leave them. So there are these tense conversations that comes up that come up as she visits these other families about kind of race and relationships in America. And so I think that's one of the conversations she's having with Bird. She's saying that in some ways her deciding to act in the world to make it a better place is because she loves Bird and that it's kind of wanting to keep him safe is the thing that drives her to try and make the world better, I think. And so let's talk about what she is doing with those bottle caps. Yeah, and I like that. Yeah. Oh, so I what, like this place too. <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, you didn't like this part either. I think. Oh, I think all the bits that were sort of about the dystopia, I sort of thought were just a little bit twee. Okay. Um, yeah, I think because like she does such a good job of talking about like the emotional impact of removing kids from their parents on parents and kids, and she deliberately, like she says in the afterwards, references you know, some of the child removals at the borders in America from mm. a couple of years ago where even children as young as toddlers were taken away from their parents and put in cages and lots of those children still haven't been reunited mm. with their families. Of, I mean, in Australia it kind of makes you think of Indigenous child removals yeah. which, you know, are still going on at disproportionate rates in Indigenous communities. It makes you think of some of the stuff that's come out in Ireland about the finding of, you know, children's bodies behind uh, welfare houses and Mm. and so on so and it makes you think about some of the treatment of indigenous children in the schools in both Canada and Mm. America so she quite deliberately kind of references those and I think those stories are we're still kind of living in the aftermath of all of them and they haven't been resolved there's no Mm. easy resolution for how you get justice for people how you help people heal about what you need to do to stop it what kind of activism helps or hinders 
And so we kind of know that like in reality, ending those sorts of policies to the extent that they're ever really ended when you don't live in a world that's entirely fair and just, is this long, slow, ongoing process often driven by people doing fairly anonymous, tireless work, Mm -hmm. as well as like big collective movements of protest action. And so... And then, yeah, the aftermath of that about how you get justice. We've had endless kind of court cases that don't really seem to deliver justice for many people. So it's a really kind of messy area. And we see people who kind of live with the legacy and the trauma of having been taken from their parents and how you build a life or how you become a parent. These are all really, I don't know, heavy, complicated issues which she deliberately and consciously references in the book. So I think the idea then of when it came to her big kind of extravaganza at the end. It just felt a little bit, I suppose, kind of twee in relation to the heaviness of what she was talking okay. about and the kind of the knowing that in reality it's just much more complicated, I suppose. Right. I was happy that she wasn't blowing the place yeah, that's up like true. we thought. <laughs> and so what she actually was doing was transmitting through all these little bottle caps and there were thousands of them that she hit all around the city and transmitting the stories that she had collected of all the people that Andrea just mentioned, all the families that she sat with and letting their voices be heard throughout the city. And yeah, I, so you didn't, you didn't. (laughs) I didn't, it's not that I disliked her. I thought it was a really nice moment. And I think it fits with like the book's theme of like about communication. So the people, the resistance of people are always trying to find ways to communicate. So Mm. it's through the libraries about trying to share their stories. There's a lot of stuff in the book about, us as individuals taking responsibility for not burying our head in the grounds, of for listening to other people's stories and for acting in solidarity with other people. So I think at the end of the book when she shares the stories that she's collected throughout the city and people stop in the street to mm. kind of listen yeah. and to you know really pay attention to what's been going on and to make sure that the people... Because often these child removals, to the extent that they're reported, are reported in newspapers that are vetted by PACT. So... You never get the perspective of the parents. You Mm. just have them as these demonised kind of figures. So hearing them talk very intimately about their children and what it's like to not be around their children and what they miss about their children Mm. is this, yeah, this way of countering all the kind of propaganda that's been spread about them and really challenging people who are listening to the stories to think about the reality of what's going on, what they think about it and whether or not, you know, it's fair or... But you know they they're not able to say they don't know after that. Like, yeah, you're not able to say why well, didn't I didn't know. Yeah. So I thought I did think that was really good. I just sort of felt maybe just a little bit underwhelmed. I don't know. <laughs> I think that's I don't know. I think probably it's a testament to how good some of the how well she evokes some of I guess real life experiences or real life processes of child removal that then when that conclusion comes it just feels like a bit of a, a fantasy. Okay. element or something it didn't quite feel real or like something that could really happen I don't know so I sort of felt that I thought it was nice but it just felt maybe a little bit I don't know a little bit light on or something compared to the heaviness of what she'd spoken about certainly, how did you find it? well certainly just what you said there reminded me that one of the things that I have affected me most in this book was when Sadie was removed from her parents home I thought mm. she did such a beautiful job yeah. of describing that moment and how Sadie was you know her mother was trying to be calm so then she was trying to be calm and yet you know, the police officers took her away in the car and then afterwards she was left wondering if she should not have been so calm and, mm. uh, you know, kicked yeah. and screamed and made more of a fuss 
that part made me cry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of the stuff in the when I was first reading that opening section, and Bird was as well talking about how much he misses his mum, mm. and Sadie was talking about being taken off her parents. I was like, I don't know if I can finish this. <laughs> <laughs> this is really. And then mm. when you know, there's this bit where he's with Margaret, and she so kind of engrossed in what she's been doing she's forgot to get food for him and mm. then she's so angry at herself for forgetting how to do it and then she realizes she doesn't know what she should get for him to eat like right. she doesn't know what he likes and but she's also then there's this bit where she's watching him in a train and he used to sit at one end and she used to sit at the other so no one links them and her just like hyper awareness of all of his body languages mm. and the way he kind of moves and the way you kind of watch your children with this like love and anxiety at the same time. <laughs> and yeah, I just thought all of that stuff about the relationship between parents and their kids was so well done. And about the, you know, there's that detail with Sadie as well, that she's just come out of the bath and she's in her PJs and her mum hasn't done her hair properly. And she's African-American, so she, her mum's really worried that no one will know how to do her yeah. hair properly. So can she just do the hair? And the officer is like, no, you can't do the hair. Mm. You know, she's just, and then she's just gone. And yeah, and Sadie's thing of like, she should have fought harder. Yeah. Yeah, it's just really, really brutal. Even that idea of the man going in when he goes into the library and he's so distressed, like, saying that, you know, the person who've, who've left the message in here might really, really, really want to get the message back and he realise he's a father mm. who's like looking for his child. Like, all of those things, I think, are really, just really unbearably sad. <laughs> You're just <laughs> like, oh, man, I don't know if I can finish this. This is rough. <laughs> but, yeah, so I think they're all the really strongest parts of the book and... Yeah, I just thought some of the dystopian elements were either a bit vague <laughs> right. or I think just felt a bit slight in relation to how well she writes about the reality of child abduction, of the child removals and how that feels and what it's like. I don't know. I've been a bit hard on it. Can I ask about a technical thing? Sure. Somebody on Goodreads said called this a YA dystopia that I guess passes for literary fiction because of the super clever absence of speech marks. <laughs> and the tone of that I appreciate because I normally hate it when <laughs> the author doesn't include speech marks in yeah, in, in the book. Yeah. yeah, but in this novel, I didn't even really realize it until I was about a quarter of the way through and then I was like, there are no yeah. quotation marks in here. I'm so used to it. I don't, uh, I have to stop paying attention. I think, yeah, I didn't even notice that. I do think it's a good pickup that this could easily fit in a YA um, section. I think it definitely straddles, like I think lots of contemporary dystopian fiction probably straddles the line between YA and kind of you know, literary fiction or general fiction. Okay. I think I it, didn't, be, it surprised me that they said that about YA because I didn't get YA vibes off of it at I did. all. I thought I could see that this would be a good one for kind of teens and upwards because it kind of deals with... I mean, what a lot of teenagers are... Like, it's told from the perspective of Bird and Sadie primarily, mm. who are kind of teens who are reckoning with their parents, mm. with a world that's kind of unjust and unfair, with feeling ostracised from their peers, with being lonely, with having, you know, Bird's got an unusual kind of relationship with Ethan. Like, mm. he sort of loves his dad, but also feels quite alienated from him because they can't have an on honest conversation. So I can see that... Yeah, I think this would be a really good read for, for teens as mm. well. I think there's lots in it that they enjoy. Yeah. It's a good one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a good pickup. The speech marks didn't bother me. I think right. I'm so used to it. I didn't even <laughs> notice. But uh, yeah, I, I, think I feel like, I don't know, in my head, the whole novel scene seems more muted somehow okay. when there are no speech marks there. It's just, yeah. I think I'm so used to it. I don't wow. even recognise it now. Yeah, right. I think it can be confusing when you have multiple... Lots of people chatting at the one time. Yeah. But I think in this, like, 
the first section, you're very kind of clearly in Bird and Ethan's kind of life or it's, you know, two people. So it's, you know, Bird mm. talking to Ethan, Bird talking to Sadie. In the second section, it's pretty much all a long monologue from Margaret. Mm. And then the third section, there isn't much talking because it's the kind of the denouement of you know, what, what Margaret's been kind of up to. So I never mm. found it too confusing. Mm. Yeah, I yeah, guess because there's, there's not much chat. <laughs> yeah, it didn't <laughs> jump kind out of monologues. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Throughout the book, I was thinking of Handmaid's Tale and the fact that Margaret Atwood, when she said she was writing that book, made the point that she didn't make anything in that book up, that mm. everything that she wrote about came from history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Yeah, I was thinking of that while I was reading it, and I was thinking of the Japanese-American and Canadian internments, Mm. and both of which she mentions in the author's note at the end, so... Yeah, I think that's probably one of the the things about dystopia for me. Like, so dystopian fiction, I think, usually does take from existing Mm. political tensions, political movements, or things that have actually happened, but I feel like now there's like a... There's just so many tropes mm. for dystopian fiction that are pretty standard. So I think it's really hard, for me at least, to make dystopian fiction kind of interesting. Like you kind of – all this stuff is true, but the tropes of dystopian fiction are so kind of well established that you kind of know what to expect as a reader. So they're kind of dropping all these hints about how it works and they're like, yeah, 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 that's like in 1984 or mm. uh, or that's like in The Handmaid's Tale mm. or, you know, I just sort of find that I think it's really hard to write a dystopian fiction that feels fresh as well. Mm. I don't know. Like I, I'm sort of thinking there's a city in the city by Chain of Evil who's like a – there's a dystopian fiction where there are two cities – that are actually one city, but there's this thing of like unseeing. So the residents of each city just pretend the other city doesn't exist and you can't see it. And I thought that was kind of, so it's a kind of fantasy novel, but I thought that was kind of a novel way of writing a dystopia and of showing the way we like, we just don't see stuff. Like you physically don't see it, your eyes blur Mm. and you can't see what's in front of you. And the bit where people cross between the two worlds is called the breach and it's heavily policed and stuff. So it's all about like what, what you see and what you don't see. And who's a person and who's not a person in the world that you kind of live in. So I thought that's kind of a novel way of writing it, it's dystopia. But it feels like in, in this one and in lots of other kind of maybe dystopias that come from people from a literary background, mm. it feels like there's just a kind of framework for dystopian stuff. There's a slow build and release of information. Mm. And yeah, I, I don't know. I just don't find that too compelling, even if the, the what it references is really interesting. Mm. There's sometimes I sort of wonder like... Just why not just write it as a straight contemporary novel about where we are now? Like why go with the trappings of dystopia when I don't feel like they're giving us anything new? Mm-hmm. You know, we really are just kind of talking about a lot of stuff in contemporary politics. I mean, some of this stuff is just far from resolved in either America or Australia or Canada. So why not just kind of set it in the here and now? Yeah, I don't know. I sort of Maybe I haven't read as much dystopian fiction as you have. I just, it, it, yeah, it, it, I didn't have the same, I didn't see the tropes as clearly as yeah. you did. Maybe, or maybe it's just me being, being a little bit kind of pedantic, but I just feel like, yeah, it's hard to make that stuff really fresh. Yeah. And sometimes maybe the best way to do it is just to drop the pretext and just set it in the here and now. But maybe that's too confronting for people. Maybe that's why. I don't think that's a bad thing, though. Like, mm. I sort of think particularly when you're talking about this, dropping some of those fantastical elements like the the network of librarians and having it be these, like, activist groups that are actually doing that type of work mm. and setting us in the real world of it. 
maybe it's a harder sell, maybe it's less likely to get published because it's sort of as too political or something like yeah, that. So maybe the dystopia gives you a buffer. Mm. I don't know. But I think for me, I feel like maybe this novel would have worked better if it just dropped you right in the actual world we kind of lived in, maybe told from the perspective of a you know, a child of activist parents or something like that. I think mm. that would have been um, yeah, an interesting way of retelling a story. I don't know if we've seen dystopian fiction, though, from an Asian-American writer before. So that I appreciated. I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I didn't look that up. But yeah, I'm not too sure. <laughs> I feel like we might have, but I'm not. I'm not too sure. But yeah, there certainly wouldn't be mm. a lot of it. It's not like it's all over yeah. the place. But it did. One of there's a book that came out recently. Olga dies dreaming, which is about a woman who lives in New York City. She's doing quite well for herself as a a wedding planner for. Manhattan's kind of uber elite but she is the daughter of I believe a kind of Mexican radical who left the family quite young and part of the book is about her reckoning with her mother's absence and her mother's politics and so I think in some ways that's kind of like an interesting parallel to this one in the sense of like how do children of people who are kind of radicals or who've maybe chosen political movements over their children or their role as parents like how what, what happens in the wake of that for the children. Mm. And that's one that doesn't have any kind of dystopian trappings. Mm. It's just kind of told as a straight kind of novel. And I started reading it and haven't finished it yet. Oh. So, <laughs> But, yeah, so, so that's kind of, yeah, set in America. And I guess it has that contrast between this world of this kind of bourgeois elite in New York or whatever with all their money for all of their kind of incredible trappings mm. and wealth and conspicuous displays of wealth and these kind of weddings. And then the life of kind of Mexican resistance and this woman who... I guess because of the social structure of America can kind of straddle both, but it's kind of an outsider in both of those worlds too. Mm. So I guess that's kind of like just a, doing something similar, but in a straight yeah, kind right. of way. But yeah, I mean, I guess you can only review the book someone has written. <laughs> and I really, en- I did really enjoy it. Like I said, this was a really enjoyable kind of read. I just thought some of the dystopian elements felt a bit generic, but her stuff about parents and family mm. and... I think was really, really, really good. Yeah, I really enjoyed it too. And I read it, I, w- I had leave last week, so I read it on leave and I feel like it was the perfect sort of book to have where you can really, you have the time to just sink into it and you don't have to read it in little bits because like, I just mm. read it in a big chunk and it was... Yeah, same. I read it in three big chunks. Yeah, right. I reckon, like, and I reckon I could have kept going for those and read more if it wasn't so late in the evening. Like, mm, It's really yeah. readable. And it feels like... The plot just moves really quickly. Like mm. she's really – she doesn't sort of sit in anything for too long. Like mm. it keeps feeling like there's a sense of momentum yeah. building. And, the you know, I think she does give the kids lots of room for reflection. So both Ethan and – sorry, for both Bird and Sadie time to think about what they're doing. But she sketches it all quite succinctly. So yeah. you do feel like there's a momentum and things are building. But also like the characters are changing and growing and their perceptions are kind of shifting. So I feel like even though – it's kind of she doesn't drag anything out for too long. There is that kind of feeling of the characters are kind of developing and growing in a mm. way that's interesting. Mm. I think. Yeah. Cool. Good one. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we talk about what else we read this month? Sure. So one of the other ones I read was The Younger Wife by Sally Hepworth. Oh, is that good? I've I seen it on the shelf. 
Oh, you oh you saw it on the shelf yeah, here. Yeah, it around the shelves. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had never read any Sally Hepworth before, I. and I did because we had Jane Harper here last month, and we asked her for some book recommendations. And one of the books she recommended, I don't think it was this book by Sally Hepworth, but it was a Sally Hepworth book. And I thought, oh, I've never read her. So this is the story of an older man who is a surgeon, and his wife suffers from Alzheimer's disease, and he meets a woman who's about the same age as his two adult daughters and because of his wife's condition he doesn't have the same relationship with her anymore and he sort of very amicably arranges to divorce his wife so that he can marry this younger wife and his daughters obviously have concerns about that and about this woman who's basically their same age and sort of not replacing their mother but their mother's still alive she's still Mm -hmm. around and she's suffering but you know she's still their mom and and then one daughter discovers a stash of money and a note with a woman's name on it who she's never heard of before and all these family secrets begin to emerge so I I liked I felt like this was women's fiction yeah and so I (laughs) felt I was judging myself for the fact that I really did enjoy it it was it's very much a page turner that's awesome Uh, especially when you're on holiday yeah, yeah yeah so yeah so I did really enjoy it like I said, for a Sally Hepworth novel. And yeah, I think I'd read her again. Awesome. Yeah, I've seen yeah. that around and thought it looked it looked interesting. So yeah. maybe I'll have to check one of hers out. Yeah. Cool. So probably the most interesting thing I've read since the last time we had a chat was a book called The Town by Sean Prescott. He's an Australian writer and this was his first novel. It came out a few years ago and I picked it up because his new book has just come out. But in the review, they mentioned this one. And I thought, oh, that sounds way more interesting. So I read the first one. <laughs> I don't know how to describe this book. It's really, really funny and really deadpan and really surreal and strange. So it starts off with this kind of narrator who rocks up in this you know, fairly dead-end town in Australia. And he's writing a book somewhere in New South Wales, I think. And he's writing a book about towns along the New South Wales coast that are literally disappearing. So it's not like, you know, they're in economic decline and they turn into ghost towns. But there's almost this supernatural. They are just disappearing off the map. And he's trying to write a book about these towns. So you can already kind of hear how sort of kind of nonsensical this is. And um, obviously no one's ever heard of the towns that he's talking about because they've disappeared, but he somehow knows about them. Mm. And then he's convinced that he's actually in a town that is in the process of disappearing itself. Sounds like Uh, a Twilight Zone episode. It's really great. It feels a bit like a Kafka novel, but set in Australia. (laughs) So it's really, really funny and really good, but really weird. So... Yeah, like he's trying to write a biography. He's not actually trying to write a biography of the town that he's in because he doesn't think it's a disappearing town. It's just a declining town. But no one in the town has any historical memory of why the town was set up, why they built a train station, where the train station goes, who founded the town. Like there's no historical memory of the town whatsoever. So you can't actually write this book about it. So, but he's, so he goes around the town trying to find people who could tell him a little bit about the town. Um, so you meet people who live in the town and you realise the geography of the town means that like there's no way in, there's no way out. <laughs> so you're like, well, how did he get here? So it's a really strange book, but it's really funny. Like there's a whole chapter where he finds out that some random person he's never met has decided to bash him. And he's like, why is he going to bash me? And everyone's like, well, you know, everyone has a time in their lives where someone wants to bash him. And you've just got to front up and let him bash you and get it over and done with. He's like, but I don't want to get bashed. So then he starts going, you know, visiting the local pub to try and see if he can find this man and say, why do you want to bash me? You don't even know me. 
And so it has this like thing about just the weirdness of small towns mm. and the irrationality of small towns sometimes as well. And so he meets the man, but the man's there with his family. So it's like, oh, I'm not going to bash you today. <laughs> um, and then, but then it also turns out that there's like seven or eight different people who live in the town who have the same name. So he's not sure if he was watching the right person that wants to bash him or if it's a different person that wants to bash him. And he's really concerned. So he's calling in sick to work. And he's just, so the, the book is like full of. Um, Episodes like that as well. Just really strange, weird little episodes. It's really, really good. So it's called The Town okay. by Sean Prescott. So you finished it and you yeah, liked it? Yeah, I really liked it. Right. I thought it was a, just a weird little gem. <laughs> uh, so I think beneath the weirdness you could say that it's probably a subtext about the way Australia as this colonial settler state does kind of want to forget its origins. Uh. We do kind of want to forget our history. We do sort of want to pretend it doesn't exist. We don't really want to acknowledge that some of these towns were set up so we could, you know, steal land essentially. Yep. So we could steal territory and that's the kind of reason it exists or it exists because there was a massacre there. We don't really want to acknowledge that. We just kind of sit in this kind of fog of not knowing things mm. and unknowing things. So there is that kind of way you consider and there is like a, a total, you know, in some Australian fiction there's this desire to, the way they write about the bush is so kind of immersive and you kind of feel like you lose yourself in this landscape and there's this feeling of belonging to the landscape and mm. stuff. Whereas in this book it's really like this is a strange foreign place <laughs> and you can't kind of merge in with the landscape and be one with the land or something like this. This is a place of weirdness and funny memories and things not working properly and us not telling the truth about stuff. Super good. Wow. Two thumbs up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it might not be for everyone. <laughs> the other book I read is She Said by Jodie Cantor and Megan Tui, I think is how you say mm. the name. This is nonfiction about the two journalists who were researching the Harvey Weinstein scandal ah, okay. and the Me Too movement. Yep. So it's about the work that these journalists did with the women, some famous actresses, to tell their stories about what happened to them and how Weinstein's actions were common knowledge in the industry and routinely covered up with payouts that may that meant that the women then couldn't talk about it. Mm. So yeah, it was enraging, yeah, <laughs> but also yeah, really important I think to read. And this is coming out as a movie. It's coming out at the end of this month, I believe, and it's got Carrie Mulligan, Zoe Kazan, and Patricia Clarkson. Oh, I like all three of them very yeah. much. Yeah, and Ashley Judd as herself. So, oh, cool. Yeah, Excellent. I think it's gonna. I saw a trailer for the movie when I was going to see something else, and I thought, oh, I want to read that book first. Yeah, that so, sounds really. Good. Yeah, I did. It's really, it's really gripping. Yeah, and not like a huge novel. So yeah, cool. A big recommend on that one too. The other one I've just started. I haven't finished it yet, but mm. I'm really liking it so far. It's called This Devastating Fever by Sophie Cunningham. So it's a new release. She's a writer from Melbourne, I believe. So this is kind of a novel about a writer who's meant to be writing about Leonard Wolf of the Bloomsbury set. Virginia Woolf's husband, a publisher, I think he was also like a colonial administrator and it's a project that she's been working on for over kind of 10 years and so essentially what the novel is so far about is her inability to write this book properly. So about how she gets caught up in her life and the things that are kind of, it's essentially about kind of Sophie Cunningham I think and her inability to finish this project you know and she's sort of like in a time when like sometimes it can feel like the world is ending why am I writing about this guy like why do I care and her publishers are always like how's the book going it's <laughs> like hey, it's great and she goes off and she does some research she does a bit of writing then she kind of stops and she does something else and so far I'm just really enjoying this feeling of it being 
just kind of a book about just sort of being alive and you're kind of meant to do something and you kind of want to be interested and then other times you're kind of figuring out why do I do anything why do I get up and go and do stuff and so I haven't finished it yet but Mm. I'm really enjoying it so far and it's gotten really good reviews as well so it's called This Devastating Fever by Sophie Cunningham. Okay, well, maybe I'll mention one that I'm in the middle of reading that I haven't Ooh. finished yet that you mentioned, I think, the last time we talked, which is Carrie Soto is Back by Taylor oh, yeah. Jenkins Reid. I am hate reading it. Yeah. <laughs> She's not for you, I think. She's not for me, although I did like Evelyn Hugo. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. But yep. And I also don't know anything or really care about tennis. Yeah. So it's probably not the book for me. Yep. And, and I'm in the minority because of the reviews I've read. Super positive. Yeah. yeah, but to me it just seems really repetitive. Just yep. she, does, she plays one game, she plays another game. I, I haven't finished it yet. And on the front cover, it says, you will fall in love with Carrie Soto. And so far, I just think she's a massive <laughs> <laughs> self-centered B word. Yeah. So, so maybe I'm going to fall in love with you yet. I haven't finished it. So maybe, maybe she's not for you. Maybe she's maybe, just not for everyone. I don't know why I'm still reading it, but I just, I don't know. I had it with me on holiday and I felt like I just got to finish it yeah. for some reason. Yeah. But you love tennis and sports books. I think you mentioned last time. I, well, I should clarify. I like books. I do like books about sport, but mm. I can't play sports. <laughs> so I can't like, I can sort of run, but I can't run and catch anything at the same time. But I do like watching tennis mainly just in summer when it's hot mm. so you just kind of stay up and watch it I've never read anything about a tennis player I don't not super interested but I do like books about boxing oh <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't like watching boxing but there's yeah there's lots of uh, I guess really good books that were written about boxers during like I guess the 70s and the 80s and stuff so written about like Muhammad Ali and mm-hmm. some of the great rivalries of the time mm-hmm. I really like those but <laughs> I'd be interested in your thoughts on this <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna read it I could sit here and pretend but I'm not the only other thing I've just picked up is once there were wolves by Charlotte McConaughey. So there's no sport involved in this book whatsoever, but there is 14 grey wolves that are being reintroduced to the highlands of the remote in remote Scotland and as part of a rewilding project. And someone gets killed and there's a big mystery involved and there's tension between scientists and locals and there's dead people and there's wolves. <laughs> so I'm probably going to read that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's by Charlotte McConaughey and it's meant to be great. So I'm probably going to read that instead of the tennis. Okay. But good luck. <laughs> Thanks. Maybe you'll fall in love with her. Maybe. I'll let Maybe. you know next month if I've <laughs> changed my mind by the end. The heart's a mysterious thing. <laughs> Who knows? Now, shall we talk about the Sydney Morning Herald article yes. that someone shared with us? Actually, Jane from the podcast yeah. shared with me. <laughs> And she said she thought it would be good to talk about on the podcast. So let's do that. It's called We've Forgotten How to Read Long Novels and We'll Pay the Price. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But it's basically about how we spend so much, this is a quote, we spend so much of each day grazing on mental junk food that our appetite for serious literary nutrition is shrinking. And he's talking, is it a he? Yes, he is talking about the likes of like James Joyce's Ulysses and Proust. In Search of Lost Time. Yeah. What do you think about that? Do you think that's true? I think when people start using phrases like mental junk food Mm. and serious literary nutrition, they just (laughs) kind of lose me. Like I just think, oh, rack off. I think it's true that we probably don't read – I've been thinking about this. I think we don't read classics like Ulysses and stuff as often as maybe they – 
were once read. I'll, I'll just one of the things that he says that resonated with me is reading fiction civilizes us. It takes us beyond our parochial vantage points, expanding our circle of empathy by seducing us into thinking and feeling like people are very different from ourselves. I think that's true. I think mm. reading is really one of the great things about reading is it can help you do that. It can immerse you in new worlds and the minds and lives of people who are unlike yourself. And I think that's one of the great things about reading. But there's always a subtext in these articles that says that some books do it better than others. Mm. And they're usually by European men mm. who wrote massive tomes years and years and years ago and I don't think that reading a short book by say an Asian American woman that mm. came out in the last year like I think that can be just as immersive an experience so sort of look, I think lots of the classics I mean it's really fraught the way we talk about classics like who gets included in the classics and who doesn't mm. and there's lots of really fantastic stuff that's been excluded from the canon on the basis of who wrote it and their gender or their race or whatever. Yeah. So I think it's worth thinking about the canon in a critical way because it's usually European, white European men that get included in the canon. But having said that, I think it's important to kind of try and push yourself a bit as a reader and it can be a good idea to kind of, you know, try and expand what you read. So maybe do kind of think about, okay, I'm going to try and read a classic or I'm going to try and read a longer book or I'm going to read a book by an Indigenous Australian woman or I'm going to, you know, to set yourself a challenge of things saying that I'm going to try and read outside my comfort zone mm. and I'm going to try and push myself to do it or to kind of say to yourself, do you know what, I've been, you know, picking books up and not finishing them. I'm going to try and for the next month commit to trying to finish a book or something like that. I think that's really fine to, to try and do. I just kind of resent the implication that like there are some books that make you a better person if you read it. They make you smarter, mm. they make you more civilised, they make you more empathetic, you know, and I, I don't agree with that kind of premise. What well, I think did resonate with me from this article was the fact that he talks about how at, when you're online and you're scrolling through whatever and you're reading just little snippets of articles and articles have started saying at the top mm. now, this will take you two minutes to read, six minutes to read. Mm. And uh, I do think there is value in sitting down. And it really, it resonated with me because I had just been on holiday mm. and spent so much time sinking into a book by an Asian American female author and it, it did it, it did feel different like because we talked about a couple of months ago about how I've been going through a reading slump and I was really finding it difficult to just not scroll on my phone so after and my partner as well he he's a reader he reads a lot of non-fiction but this time he took Cloud Street and it's mm. funny because he mentions Cloud Street in this article yes. and he he liked Tim Winton, but he hadn't ever read Cloud Street before, and it's quite, I don't know how many pages, it's quite a long family saga. And he really felt changed by having spent the time really sinking into that book. And when he, he didn't finish it, but at the end of the holiday, he felt calm. He felt mm. more calm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I definitely think that, like, there's lots of movements about doing things slowly now mm. to kind of counteract that feeling of stress or anxiety or distraction or just busyness that makes it really hard to focus on things sometimes. Mm. So, you know, or the, the way technology kind of encourages you to be on this endless scroll rather than taking time to kind of immerse yourself in something. So I definitely think that I think there's lots of research that shows this as well, that mm. like actually reading can be really calming, can be really settling and immersing yourself in a longer form book 
can be really good for, for kind of getting some of those benefits. So I definitely agree with that. I think the thing that I kind of arc up against in articles like this is they're always like, um, you know, you should read Proust or something mm. like that. And even his own argument is like, oh, you could absolutely skip vast sections yeah. of it. It is <laughs> very that, boring. I thought that was funny <laughs> to <laughs> rack off. Like, I, think I don't want to read something that's no. very boring. And he's places. like, no one reads Ulysses the whole way through. <laughs> I mean, I remember trying to read that in English as my first language. And I was like, what? You know, but I think there is value in like pushing yourself to read work mm. that is challenging and, you know, trying to stick with it and see how you go. But I just resent, I guess, that often gets spoken about in this way that feels full of kind of value judgment. And, and like in this, there kind of is this idea that, bec- you know, us not reading these longer books is kind of a symptom of us becoming a more selfish culture. Mm. And I really resent these kind of like diagnostic type articles. It's not, you know, a case that people are just really busy and really time poor mm. and that, you know, the novel doesn't occupy the same central place in culture that it once used to, mm. like in Tsarist Russia or something <laughs> like that, you know, or like, you know, so I think, yeah, I just resent that aspect of it. There is lots of data that says that people more buy more books than they have before. Yeah. So people are definitely still reading in spite of the fact that, you know, reading probably isn't as central to the culture as it used to be, that people have all of these other things competing for their interests. People mm. do still read. So I think it's better to talk about this in a positive way, about how you can extend your reading, challenge your reading habits, create new reading habits, the benefits it might have to you of trying to, like, engage with something that you think is tricky, which is often just a matter of your own confidence in yourself. Mm. You think you're not clever enough to read something or you won't understand it or that you won't be interested in it because you're not smart enough or something like that. And I think it's a good idea to challenge those ideas about your habit yourself and say, no, I'm going to give it a bash and I'm going to see... You know, I'm going to read – a few years ago I read Madame Bovary and I mm. thought that I knew what that book was about and then I read it and it's great. It's <laughs> just fantastic. I sort of read it probably out of a sense of this is very important book. <laughs> this very important book. And then I read it and I'm like, no, this is great. So you can surprise yourself as well. But So I think talking about it in a positive way is better than kind of saying if you don't read Proust, it's a sign that you're a really selfish person <laughs> who's probably contributing to the downfall of like late stage <laughs> capitalism or something like that, whatever is going on about it. It's like, you know, I, I think just removing some of that value judgment is important and just, yeah, talking about things in a positive way and, um, yeah. Yeah. And if you want more ideas like that, you should listen to our episode on the book slump because we do talk a lot about getting back into reading and how you can do that. Yeah. And if you do want to extend your reading and read things outside of your comfort zone, you should join one of our book clubs. Oh, yes. (laughs) So we have a range of kind of contemporary stuff and classics in our book kits. And it's a good way to meet other people and read outside your comfort zone. So if you want to meet other people to join a book club you should come to our book club social night yes. which is happening this month yeah it's on november 22nd at a hallett cove branch in the evening starting at 6 30 so if you wanted to start a book club for ages but your friends and family and colleagues are like not interested in in getting involved come along meet some other people annie from mostly books will be talking about some new releases so we'll be picking some new books to go into the collection so even just for that it's a nice way of kind of seeing what's out and about in the book world and it's free Um, and it's free so come and like have a drink yep (laughs) eat some nibbles listen to us chat about books tell us a bit about some of your favorite books hopefully meet some other people start a book club it's gonna be really fun yeah and it's a great way i mean you can chat to people about what you'd like out of a book club are you reading because you want to get back into reading after a while or are you reading because you've you know you're like me you're kind of just going i'm just going to read crime all the time and i want to <laughs> read something different yeah just come along and have a chat and 
hopefully start get a new book club up and running. Yeah, check out our Eventbrite page. It has all the details and you can book your spot. Yes. Now, did you want to tell us about what's coming up sure. this month? I can definitely do that. So on the fiction front, one thing I'm excited about and other South Australians might be is that there is a new Gary Disher book coming from Text. It's the third book in his crime series with the cop Hirsch who kind of works in regional South Australia, and it's called Day's End. So that's coming out next month, so keep your eye out. They're such a good series. I don't know if you've ever read no, any of I the Gary Disher ones. They're really, really good. Okay. It's all kind of set in, like, rural South Australia. Um, um, stakes aren't super high, but there's <laughs> always, like, the way the crimes interconnected is always really satisfying, and there's a really great kind of sense of place. So, yes, yeah, so that's on is a good one. In international news from Penguin Random House, Cormac McCarthy, probably best known for The Road, is bringing out two novels in short succession. Okay. Um, it's part of a series. So the first one is called The Passenger and it's they're playing a little bit mum about what's going on. It's about a salvage diver who I think also has a fear of the ocean who may or may not be involved in some kind of a conspiracy. And in December, the second volume in that series is released and it's called Stella Maris. And it's already the two books are kind of being referred to as a complete kind of classic and a masterpiece. So for fans of Cormac McCarthy, I think they're both kind of quite short novellas. And it's been a while since he published something. So I feel like that's kind of an exciting end of year release. Are Um, you a fan? I've liked some of his stuff and not others. So I liked The Road. I don't Mm -hmm. know if I'd like it as much if I read it now. Mm. Um, I tried with some of his earlier ones like Blood Meridian and I found it too stylized for okay. me and Child of God, just kind of too violent. There were these like really wordy kind of westerns, mm. kind of really blood-soaked and Bible-soaked and <laughs> it just was a bit much for me. Mm. But I did really like some of those Southern Gothic books but I sort of tended to prefer female writers in that kind of genre. Right. I found him just a bit too blokey. Yeah, but I then I liked the road. Oh, see, yeah. I didn't like that. The road's the only one I read, ah, and I didn't like it. So, okay, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. I read it when I was young, and I think maybe young and earnest. I don't know if I read it now. I might feel, and as a parent, I might feel a little bit different. Yeah, I think I'm as a quite parent, sure. Yeah, it's yeah. challenging. Mm. Yes, I think mm. I might feel differently now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also a bumper period for memoirs. So there's lots of memoirs coming out over the next month. There's oh, one by Ash Barty. It's my dream time, a memoir of tennis and teamwork. Maybe oh. this could be a tennis book that you'd maybe, like. An maybe. An antidote to Carrie Soto, maybe. <laughs> the man himself, Bono. <laughs> oh. Yeah, he's got a memoir coming out called 40 Songs, One Story. I think Bono would probably be really good at talking about himself. So, <laughs> I think, so I think my impression is that it's kind of a memoir told through song um, okay. and his relationships to different songs. I think you two songs, but maybe other songs as well. I'm mm. not quite sure. But I think that will probably be huge and mm. really popular. There's a couple of other ones. So it's a few local ones. There's a new one out by Miff Warhurst and also a new one out from Will Anderson called I'm Not Fine, Thanks, which is him sort of writing during lockdown in, I believe he's in Melbourne that kind of experience of being like a comedian where your whole job is to be out in front of people and the world and all of a sudden you're like sat at home mm. and what that experience was like. Matthew Perry has his biography Oh, yeah, as he well. slags off Keanu Reeves. Yeah, <laughs> no one say. cares anymore. He's lost all public sympathy. It's all, and what, what did he say about Keanu Reeves? I've heard well, that that... I have followed this closer than I oh. care to admit to. <laughs> so people felt sorry for him when he was like, oh, you know, he spent $9 million on his journey to sobriety. People were like, oh poor guy's had a rough run so then they released some excerpts from his book and he just repeatedly takes these weird pot shots at why Keanu Reeves gets to be alive while these other talented actors like 
oh, what's his name, River Phoenix and Heath Ledger are dead. So I think he was like in a film with River Phoenix and he was talking about how amazing he was and what a gifted person he was. And, and he was saying, and yet Keanu Reeves is still alive and walks among us. He was also like one of, you know, uh, River Phoenix's best mates. Right. Like devastated by it. And then he said something about Heath Ledger and then he also followed that up with, and meanwhile, Keanu Reeves is still alive and walks among us. Why? Wait, Everyone loves Keanu Reeves. Like, <laughs> you, I think he's a terrible actor and a lovely man. <laughs> he's like, leave him alone. Everyone loves him. Like, the internet loves him. The world loves him. Libraries pick, love libraries him. Libraries love him. <laughs> Everyone loves him. Why pick on Keanu Reeves? So now I think... Just the world has kind of turned on Matthew Perry. Right. It's like, maybe you're a jerk. <laughs> oh, so no. that's what's happened. But he does have his book coming out. Yes. Um, for better or worse than Matthew <laughs> Perry. <laughs> I, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I listened to a podcast called Celebrity Memoir Book Club where they, oh, yeah. they read the celebrity memoirs so you don't have to. Yeah. I'll probably listen. They have their episode coming out today, I think. Who are they reading this month? Matthew Perry. Oh, they're doing the Matthew Perry yeah, one. So that, ah. I'll be listening to that. Yeah, I feel like... He talks a lot about friends. He talks a lot about why Julia Roberts isn't his girlfriend or he broke up with her or something oh, like that. Okay. I don't know. It's the Keanu Reeves things that really got me. I was, like, yeah. I was mildly sympathetic to your struggle. And now I think maybe, I don't know, you're just not a very nice person. <laughs> but it's kind of coming out now, people then kind of saying, yeah, I saw him at a cafe once and he wasn't exactly rude to anybody, but he wasn't overly friendly About either. Matthew yeah, Perry? Yeah, about Matthew oh, Perry. he's like, having a James Corbin moment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did I say his name right? James, James Cor- Corbin? James. I know the guy you mean. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. The guy who's not very nice to the waiters. Yeah. James and then he's Corbin, like, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm not really sorry. I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, I probably did do something <laughs> wrong. Then his wife was spotted without the wedding ring. <laughs> And then I heard this story about how the he was on a flight. Oh yeah, I read this too. too with with this woman who had this like screaming child, and he just was putting on his headphones, and people were thinking, oh, he's you know just like letting the woman you know not complaining about the child and yeah. just sort of trying to ignore it, and you know, and then then they get up at the end of the flight, and he's like, the the woman says to him, and something about can you get the the bags, the baggage, or yeah. the baggage, or something, and it became clear that he was just ignoring his own wife yeah, and child. Just like put noise cancelling headphones on and all them. I don't know if this story is true or apocryphal, but no. I sort of think, yeah, it's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> but we cannot say whether it's true or not. We just we think we've we, actually we might have given him the wrong name, so he can't sue us because yes. technically <laughs> we could be talking about anyone. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but you know who we're talking about. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's a talk show. <laughs> Well, shall I announce the book for next month? Yeah, go okay. for it. In a complete departure, this is Ehu. I had suggested to Jane long ago on the podcast that we should read because neither of us had read him. And he's an extremely popular author in libraries. And she always said, no, (laughs) now she's not here. So we're going to try it. Our book for next month is Escape by James Patterson. Andrea, can you talk to us about James Patterson's reputation in libraries? Can I? Um, <laughs> I guess he's really, he's really popular. He has about four shelves that's, dedicated that's to him at any given time. That's Is what I'm talking possible about. Possible to miss the James Patterson section. The, the um, librarians often have trouble shelving James Patterson. Yeah, you never know. Like, so should much. we shelve it in the series or just whack them all in the one spot? Mm. Yeah, it kind of feels like there's the fiction section and then there's the James Patterson section. <laughs> yes, including in the children's section yeah. and in the teen section. And who knows how much bit he's written. The rumours mm. are that he has a crack team of ghostwriters. I don't know. I say, like, 
do what makes you happy. If you like James Patterson, go for it. Like I, he's very prolific. <laughs> and because I have never read James Patterson, and I feel like I am remiss in not reading something someone who's so popular in yeah, libraries. Yeah, cool idea. So here is the blurb. When five teenage girls are abducted, Chicago PD Detective Billy Harney leads the investigation to find them. Harney and his partner Carla follow a lead to a remote house, only to find themselves caught in a deadly trap. A huge explosion rips through the building, killing Carla and allowing the kidnapper to escape. With the loss of his partner fueling him, Harney strengthens his resolve to find her killer and to make sure the body count ends there. So this is dun, dun. <laughs> this is the third in a series, but we looked it up and we don't have to have read the other two yep. novels for this to make sense. So we thought we'd just go for it. Cool. This is a trending title, so you can go to the Cultural Center and it'll be on the shelf there. Hopefully we've got multiple copies available without having to wait. So go pick one up and give it a try. Good luck to you and Jazz. I can't <laughs> wait to see what you think. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Andrew, for joining us Thanks so us much again. for having me. Cheers. Lovely to be here. See ya. I'll see you later. The Diaries and, of Alan Rickman. Uh, I guess maybe he wrote them before and they've just published it posthumously. I guess he wrote it when he was alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to from the afterlife. As opposed to an afterlife. <laughs> what does it say? I actually did recommend it because I thought he was a different person. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> You might want to cut this as a final thing. <laughs> <laughs>